The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. It shouldn't be hard if you've been with us for a while. Your Bible probably already opens up to James automatically. Hebrews is just right before it, so it's just a, a few pages over. We began last week a brand new series, a brand new journey together, working our way through the wonderful letter in the New Testament called the Letter to the Hebrews. If you weren't with us last week, we introduced the book and we sort of laid a foundation and charted the course and laid out the pathway forward that we'll be traveling for the next number of months as we work our way through the book. If you weren't able to be with us, I would encourage you to go to the Grace on the Ashley website and, and uh, at your leisure, uh, go back and listen to last week's message. It's an important message as it lays the foundation for the whole book and it gives you some critical information that you'll need Uh, in order to sort of put into context what we'll be looking at in these next months. And so this morning we begin in chapter 1. We'll read together this morning verses 1 through 3, and uh, we'll break this up into into two parts uh, this morning and then next week. But let's uh, let's, let's read together. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Bible tells us long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we set out this morning in these early verses of Hebrews chapter 1. And we do so with a bit of excitement and anticipation. Because we anticipate that as we walk through these verses before us and the many yet to come, we anticipate that you will make yourself known to us in ways that are new and fresh. That perhaps as we have seen you in black and white, we will now come to see you in, in HD color. That we will come to know you like we've never known you before. And in knowing you, we will love you like we've never loved you before. Lord, take our study. Take my words. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, make them come alive in our midst that they might show us who you are. And that we might be drawn to you in devotion and commitment, and in love. It is for your glory that we've gathered, and it is for your glory that we study. And we pray these things in your holy and glorious name. Amen. I can remember the day very, very vividly. It was the day we brought our son home from the hospital. Those of you who have children... 
probably can remember that day very vividly in your world as well. I don't remember all the details of that day, but I do remember sort of the overarching thought that was in my mind as we pulled away from the hospital with that little bundle of joy in the back seat in a car seat that I didn't even fully know how to operate. I remember driving particularly careful that day. And I remember thinking, dear God, that poor little fellow in the back seat is fully dependent upon me to survive. And he has no idea that I have a clue what I'm doing. I was terribly disappointed when we left the hospital that no manual came with the baby, just the baby. And so I took from that that it was up to us to figure it out. But I remember being vividly sort of impressed with this reality that there was this human life in the vehicle and that he was fully dependent on me and I was completely ignorant as to what to do. And that thought recurred many times in the early days of his life. There were many times when, as a little baby, he's screaming his head off for some reason completely unknown to me. And I found myself thinking, what in the world do I do? What in the world does he want? I mean, I had a pretty short checklist. Food, check. Diaper, check. Beyond that, I'm at a loss. I don't know. He's just screaming and he wants something and I can't figure out what it want, what he wants. And so you try all the things you try when you're a parent. You know, you hold him this way or you hold him that way or you lean back this way or you walk around or you bounce him up and down or just any creative thing you can do that would seem to satisfy him for the moment. Beyond food and diapers, I was pretty much out of solutions. And so you just get creative at that point. And I can remember many times in those early sleepless days thinking, man, I can't wait till this kid can talk. I cannot wait until he can talk. When he can talk, we won't have this problem anymore. When he can talk and there's a problem, he can tell me what he wants and I can fix it. But right now he just screams. He's got one, one, one message. Ah! And that's it. And I don't know what ah means. I had that thought many times. Man, it's going to be great when this kid can talk. It's going to be great when he can speak. Now he talks all the time. And I find myself saying, son, would you just ratchet it down for a minute? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Back then I wanted him to talk. And now he talks all the time. And I found that when he started talking, that there are things that he says that have to now be corrected. He has to learn how to talk. But that's another story. Communication is critical. It's critical in every piece of our life. It's critical in navigating with our children. It's critical in navigating our marital relationship. What is a marriage relationship where there is no communication? It is chaos and it's disaster. That's why in premarital counseling... We spend much, much time talking about communication. Because when communication fails, people don't know what to do. And they're left on their own to figure it out. And when we're left on our own to figure things out, we usually 
don't figure it out correctly. The writer of Hebrews tells us at the very outset of this book something that is a critical, foundational, theological piece that we need to understand because it sets the trajectory for the entire book that's before us. In fact, it sets the trajectory for our entire relationship with our Creator. He declares for us in the very first line of this letter something that is critical and true. He tells us that there is a God and that He is a God who speaks. There is a God, and He's a God who speaks. He's a God who communicates. He is not a God who has left us in a situation in relationship to Him that I was in in relationship to my son when he was first born, trying to figure out what in the world it is that He wants and what in the world it is that He needs. God has not left us that way in relationship to Him. No, he, there is a God who made us, and the God who made us has communicated with us. He hasn't left it on our responsibility to try and find Him. He hasn't left it up to us to search out some path where He has hidden Himself, and we now have to live our life on some journey to try and discover a hidden path that we might one day possibly come to find Him and be able to know Him. No, the author of Hebrews tells us right at the outset, long ago and in many ways, there's a God who spoke. That the God who is and the God who made us is a God who speaks, a God who communicates, a God who hasn't left it up to us to find Him, but a God who has come near to us and has spoken to us. He has told us who He is. He has told us what He wants. We never have to sort of navigate our lives saying, Boy, I wish I knew what it is that God would want. Man, I wish God would just speak to me. God has always been and will forever be a God who speaks. The writer of Hebrews begins where Moses began in the book of Genesis. He begins with God. A God who is and a God who is real. A God who is not distant, a God who is not somehow unconcerned with earthly matters. But He's a God who's come near to His people, and a God who has revealed Himself to them. He has come near to us, and although He is infinite in power, the Bible tells us He is personal with us. Although He has all power and all knowledge and He can do all things and He has been forever and will forever be, He also comes near to His creation and speaks to us and relates to us personally that we might know Him. In fact, the only way we could ever know Him is if He speaks to us. We could never find Him on our own. We could never discover Him out of our own finite minds. Now our only hope is that the God who made us would speak to us and come near to us and explain Himself to us that we might know Him and understand Him and be able to relate to Him. And from the cover, the front cover of your Bible to the back cover of your Bible, the Scriptures introduce us to our Maker who is a God who speaks 
who reveals Himself, who reveals His will. He is not a God who is playing games with us. He is a God who is making Himself clear. He is not a God who is hiding somewhere, challenging us to find Him. Our life is not some sort of a, of a, of a, a maze or some sort of, a, of a, a challenge where we're trying to find hidden clues that we might somehow discover Him. He has not set things in motion and gone off onto vacation. No. He is and has always been a God who speaks. A God who communicates. It is, in fact, a major difference between the one true God and the false gods that have always existed in the world around us. The one true living God is a God who speaks. And false gods don't speak. We see this back in the Old Testament very vividly. This message comes out from God's own mouth to His people regularly. When we look to the Old Testament, we track with the the nation of Israel as they make their way on the journey that God has set before them to a land that is promised. And they find themselves surrounded almost constantly throughout the entire Old Testament by other nations who worship other gods, false gods, no gods at all. People who, who worship, yes, who are religious, yes, but their worship consists of bowing down before idols that are made out of stone or made out of metal or made out of wood. Offering sacrifices to idols. But the Israelites never worshipped idols. They never bowed before a piece of stone or a piece of metal or a wooden icon. The Bible tells us that the Israelites worshipped the living God. That the God that the Israelites worshipped, the God of the Old Testament, is a God who is alive, and a God who is not only living, but a God who communicates. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, we find these words. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. The living God speaks. The dead gods don't. Because they're dead. Psalm 115, verses 2 through 8. The psalmist writes, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but what? They do not speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. All of that is to say they're dead. And he follows that up by saying those who make them become just like them. And so do all who trust in them. That is to say, the false gods of the nations are not gods at all. Oh, they're made to look like a god. They have a mouth, but they can't say anything. They have eyes, but they don't see actually anything at all. They have ears, but they can't hear. You can pray to them all day long, but they hear nothing. And you can cry out to them that they might speak to you, but they will never say a word because they're dead. And those who worship them and those who make them end up just like them dead. 
Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 3 and following. For the customs are the, of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down. Here's Jeremiah describing the process by which the false gods are made by men. A tree of the forest is cut down and it's worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they can't walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. He's describing the absurdity of worshiping a false idol. He's saying, what is this thing? It's a piece of wood that somebody cut down. And a human being took an axe or some sort of a utensil, and he crafted it and made it look like something that it isn't. It can't even walk. You have to tote it around. It can't even speak. It can't do anything. It's like a cucumber. It just, it's not like a cucumber. It's like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. It's nothing at all like a cucumber. It's like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. It just sits there and looks like it's the real thing, but in reality, it's nothing. It's an empty image that has no life and can actually do nothing. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18 and following, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image? A teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone. Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. You get the contrast? What are you doing? You're worshiping something that you have made with your own hands. How do you worship a silent stone? And the contrast couldn't be more vivid, right? The idols sit silent while people speak to them But here Habakkuk says, it is God who is the one who is real. And people ought to sit silent before him as he speaks. You see, what's true in Habakkuk's day and what's true in Jeremiah's day and what's true in the psalmist's day about false gods and false idols has been true in every age of all people about every single false god. They are speechless And they cannot speak. They don't speak. You can cry out to all the Hindu gods all day long and they will never speak to you. You can cry out to all the gods of pantheism and naturalism. You can cry out to a tree and to nature and worship it all day long. But you will never hear a voice speak back to you. There will never be a message that comes back to you. You can go into every Buddhist temple that dots the landscape of the planet right now and you can bow before the elaborate statues and you can cry out for information and cry out for wisdom and cry out for help and all you'll ever hear is dead, cold silence. They cannot speak. Nope. In every one of those pursuits, man is left to search for a God who he can never find, and who never speaks. With no voice to lead him, with no truth to reveal to him, and he's left on his own. 
And that's been the predicament of humankind since there's been humankind. People come into this world already within their hearts wondering, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is the significance of my even being here? What is it that I'm supposed to do with the days that I have on this life? Important questions. And men have searched in every direction for answers to those questions, desperately looking for one to speak to them and tell them the answers. And what man has found in every one of his own pursuits is that he's left in desperation and despair. He can never find an answer that satisfies where he came from. She can never find an answer that satisfies what value there is in her living the next day. They can never find any satisfying answer as to what is the purpose of this life and where is it all going and is there anything beyond. We see the epitome of this in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21 and following. We drop into the, into the context of the prophet Elijah, a prophet of the one true God. And he's come into an encounter with the prophets of a false god by the name of Baal. And there's an encounter taking place on the top of a mountain to determine who is the one true living God who will speak, who will hear, and who will respond to the cry of his people. And so we have the lone prophet Elijah and hundreds of the prophets of Baal. And here's what the Word of God says. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. They're making a sacrifice here. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So here was the deal. They were to cut a bull, put it on the altar, and they were to call out to their God. And the one true God should hear them and speak. And the way he should speak was through fire that would come down and burn up the altar. So Elijah's telling them, okay, you guys go first. You got more of you than there is me. Cut your bull, put it on the altar, and get this thing started. They took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. Now that's funny. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to wake up. Hey, cry a little bit louder. Maybe he just doesn't hear you. He might be in the restroom. Maybe he's taking a trip. He might be taking a rest. I like Elijah. And they cried out aloud, and they cut themselves after the custom, their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
And it's a funny sort of a story when we see the sarcasm in Elijah's voice. But the reality of the whole situation is sad and pitiful and pathetic. These people have given themselves over to the worship of a God who does not speak. They are literally mutilating themselves in His presence and crying out at the top of their voice, doing everything that they have at their religious disposal to try and get Him to speak to them. And at the end of the day, there is no voice and no one speaks. It is really a sad and pitiful and vivid picture of humanity all around us. Oh, maybe Baal isn't the chosen God of our day. But the scenario is all the same. People worship the gods of their own creation. And they live in desperation day after day, crying out for help to a God who never answers them. To a God who cannot speak to them. To a God who at the end of the day leaves them desperate and hopeless and dying. You fill in the blank with whatever God of the day you want to fill in. And that's the end result. Always and forever. But that is a distinct contrast from the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not like that. He is, in fact, the exact opposite of that. He is a God who from the very beginning is presented to us as a God who speaks. In fact, when we go to the very first book of the Bible, the very first few verses of it, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we find that we are introduced to God at the very beginning as a God who speaks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And what is the first thing we find out about God? And God said something. He spoke, let there be light, and there was light. The first thing that we really find out about God is that He's a God who speaks. And if we trek all the way through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the whole creation narrative, we find that He's a God who speaks, and He continues speaking. And everything that's created is created because God speaks, and it is made. His word is powerful, and when He speaks something, it's done instantly. That phrase, God said, appears over 51 times in the Bible. Just that exact phrase alone. If you flip a couple pages over from Genesis chapter 1, you find the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and you find the first man and the first woman and their first encounter with the God who made them. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, He will surely die. From the very moment God made the first man, He did not leave him in the dark as to what he wanted and to who he was and to what he expected. He created him and He set him on his course and in his place and He said to him, I am who I am and here's what you're to do. It's all yours except that don't do that. If you disobey what I've said, the consequences will be horrific. God spoke and He expected to be obeyed. 
And he made clear to, to, to ignore his words, to disobey what he says, brings de- dreadful, horrible consequences. You flip over in your Bible a few chapters to Genesis chapter 17, and you encounter a man by the name of Abram, uh, an, an important figure in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us in verse 1 of chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said to him, Abram, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make a covenant between me and you and multiply multiply you greatly. The entire nation of Israel began with a conversation between God and Abram. It began with God speaking and saying to Abram what he needed to do and what God was about to do. You flip over to Exodus chapter 3, and we find another key figure in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Moses. And Moses is going about his business, tending his father-in-law's sheep. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, he comes upon a, a bush that is on fire and yet not being consumed. And it captivates his attention. And Moses walks over to this bush that burns but doesn't burn away. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place which you're standing is holy ground. You see, when Moses uh, caught a glimpse of this dramatic, miraculous sight, God didn't leave him to try and figure out what to do. God spoke to him and made clear to him what it was he was to do. In Exodus chapter 19, while Moses goes up on to Mount Sinai, the Bible tells us the Lord called out to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among the peoples. From the very beginning of God's interaction with humanity, from creation to Abraham to Moses, throughout the prophets, through the psalmist, from the priest in the temple, all the way to the end of the Old Testament. The Bible declares that God is a God who speaks. Men have not always liked what God had to say, but He has spoken. Men have not always believed what God has said, but God Himself has spoken. Men have not always obeyed what God has said, but God has spoken. And He has made Himself clear. He is a God who speaks. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. He says that this God who speaks is a God who has spoken in the past. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. At many times and in many ways, long ago, God spoke The writer of Hebrews is talking about the the whole era of human history from creation all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And he's saying the whole way there, in lots of different ways, at lots of different times, God has spoken. 
He's used many different ways to speak. And if we were to have time this morning, we could trick all the way through the Old Testament. And we could see a God who speaks audibly out of a burning bush. We would see a God who speaks through angels. We would see a God who speaks directly to Abraham. We would see a God who speaks to the Israelites through fire and through thunder and through earthquakes and through clouds. We would see a God who reveals himself and makes himself known through miracles sometimes. He's a God who comes to the prophet Isaiah and gives him a vision of his glory and shows him through vision who he is. He's a God who comes to Ezekiel and this vision of a wheel within a wheel and with these creatures and all through that God is speaking to Ezekiel. He sometimes uses dreams. He sometimes speaks through object lessons, through natural events. One time he even spoke through a donkey. He's a God who has found remarkably creative ways to speak. Many ways. And his speech has taken many forms. He's spoken through history. He spoke through poetry. He spoke through songs. He spoke through proverbs. He spoke through oracles and parables and sermons. And throughout the Old Testament, from creation to the end of the prophetic age, at the end of the Old Testament, God spoke in many ways on many occasions. But his speaking in the Old Testament era was progressive and was piecemeal. You need to understand this piece. That God spoke in long ago in many ways over long periods of time through many voices in many ways and God's speaking was never a full and complete revelation of Himself. It was always a piece here and a piece there and a piece here and a piece there. And the sum of it was beginning to add up to something. But from the Old Testament viewpoint and vantage of perspective, of perspective one could never see the whole picture. And as we trek our way from creation to the end of the prophets, God is progressively revealing Himself in pieces and parts, speaking a little here, speaking a little there, speaking some more here. And He's progressively revealing more and more and more of Himself, but never the full picture. All of His speaking and revelation in that time frame was true. It just was not complete. One has said it this way, Charles Swindoll. Together the individual prophets, and when we say prophets, we're talking about all those who spoke in the Old Testament, all the way back to the beginning. The individual prophets whose writings were gathered... Well, that's a typo. Let's see if we can play... uh, Wheel of Fortune here and figure out the word. Um, the individual prophets whose writings were gathered in the Old Testament canon formed a symphonic harmony of revelation building up toward a great crescendo when the final movement of God's revelation would be unveiled. The writer of Hebrews tells us something remarkable. He says God's been speaking as long as God has had men. And he's been telling men about who he is and what he's like and what he expects and what they must do and who they are and what their value and purpose is and what life is all about and where life is going beyond the grave. He's been telling them piece by piece, bit by bit, in lots of different ways over all of this time of history. It's a symphony that's been building toward a crescendo. And even in the Old Testament, they could see a time in the future when the crescendo would come and God would once and finally reveal himself fully. Not in pieces, but in the whole. 
and the remarkable truth that we find in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 is this. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Long ago, in many ways, over much time, God has been speaking in pieces and parts. But the writer of Hebrews says something remarkable. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The writer of Hebrews divides time into two pieces. Long ago, which is from creation to the end of the prophets, and these last days. Commentators argue about what these last days means. I want to suggest to you it means at least two things. Those who would have initially read this letter and heard the words, in these last days they would have immediately attached to that phrase a messianic significance because that sort of phrase is used throughout the Old Testament in thinking about and talking about and prophesying about the Messiah who would come in the last days. One example of that, I'll just give you one for time's sake, is in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14 and following. Perhaps it's the most significant. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he will execute justice and righteousness. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. You see, the Israelites were looking for the day, the last days, when the Messiah would come. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, he's saying, in these last days, he's spoken by his son. He's saying to us, these are the days prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament. The day when all of God's speaking would come to a final and complete conclusion. When all that's been spoken in parts and pieces, a little bit here, a little bit there, over centuries, will come full circle. And the whole symphony that's been building and building over time will find its final crescendo in one person, the Messiah. And the writer of Hebrews says, that Messiah, that crescendo, is the person of Jesus Christ. The writer makes clear to us, God has spoken in part, and now He has spoken in these last days fully and completely in the Son of God. That is to say that he has said all that he's going to say. God has been saying a lot over time. He's brought the whole message to full living color in the person of Jesus. And we no longer have to piece together bits and pieces. But when we look to Jesus, we see the full and final revelation of all that God means to say to men. He's it. There is no more. There are no more days in the future when God will say more. There are no more words that he intends to deliver. There is nothing left for him to say. In these last days, he has said all that he means to say fully and completely. And we shouldn't be looking for God to say anything else because he said all that he's going to say in the giving of his son. Just a side note. Beware of anybody who runs around in the world around you and claims to be saying something new from God. 
They're a fool and a false prophet. I don't care who they say they are. We have people running around today who claim to be prophet this and prophet that. People who stand up in front of large crowds and say to the people, God has told me this and God has revealed to me that. Things that are apart from the Word of God. And those people dread in, are treading in, in dangerous territory. Because God takes His words seriously. And to run around saying that you are delivering a message that are God's words when they're not His words is to blaspheme Him and to lie. And it brings a great price. In fact, we don't have time to trace this, but if you look in the Old Testament, if somebody ran around claiming to be a prophet, that is claiming to be able to speak on behalf of God, and what they said didn't come to pass, they were killed instantly. It would do well for those who run around claiming to speak for God these days to read some of those texts and to wonder why they're still alive. In the past, he spoke in many ways. He spoke to many people. He spoke over many years. But those days are over. And now he has spoken his final and complete message, and he has done it by his Son. In these days, he's not speaking in fire and dreams and visions and prophets. He's speaking in his Son. In Jesus Christ, God has come to us in person. And he's spoken to us up close and personal. He's no longer relaying his message through some sort of an intermediary. He is himself wrapped up in flesh and come to live among us and spoke in our language and spoken and lived it in our very presence. What the author of Hebrews is saying is exactly what Steve read in John chapter 1, uh, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, God's words, what He has spoken, has come to life and lived among us. We no longer have to hear His words through a prophet. We can see His words in living color in Jesus. And when Jesus speaks, we hear His Word directly through Him. From the very mouth of God. Jesus Christ is a living, breathing, speaking, acting Word of God. F.F. F. Bruce says this, His Word was not completely uttered until Christ came. But when Christ came, the Word spoken in Him was indeed God's final Word. The story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ, but there is no progression beyond Him. You see, it's not that the message in the former days was incorrect or defective or deficient. It was not. It was just incomplete. But God has completed His message in Jesus. And that's why it is a dreadful thing for a man or a woman to reject Jesus Christ. Because when you reject Jesus, you reject the final message God has to speak to you. And God will say no more. This Jesus, we're going to talk a lot about Him. But we see at least His first characteristic in these first two verses. He is utterly superior to any Old Testament prophet or speaker. 
and he is completely superior to any Old Testament message. He is the Word of God. Living, breathing, final message in person. This Jesus said some pretty remarkable things when he was alive and walking and communicating with men. Like John chapter 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When he said those words, that was God speaking. That was the truth of God speaking to men. I am the way. There is no other way. I am the truth. There is no other truth. I'm the only one who speaks and speaks the truth. And I am the life. There is no other way to life beyond this earthly existence except through me. He said things like John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep, they, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. I know who belongs to me. I speak, and they hear me. They know my voice, and they follow me. And when they do that, I give them eternal life and nobody can take that away from them ever he stood up in a crowd and he said things like if any man is thirsty let him come to me and drink and I will cause out of his inmost being to flow rivers of living water are you thirsty is there something in your soul that is thirsty you know that you're missing something and you're desperate for it Come to me and I'll give it to you. He said things like, I'm the, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never go hungry. He stood at a grave and he said to a, a, a grieving friend, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. That is the message of God delivered to you and to me. It's part of His full disclosure through Jesus. He said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow after me. You understand when you hear those words, those are not my words. Those are not the words of a prophet. Those are, whips, those, are, those are words that flowed off of the lips of God Himself. The God who speaks has spoken, and He's spoken to you. And He's spoken those words to me. And what's left on, your, on sort of your, the, the doorstep of your home, of your heart, is this. Will I receive the words that the speaking God has spoken? Will I believe them? Will I hear His voice and follow Him? Or will I look for some other way? Reject His message and listen for some other. 
reject what He has spoken and go chase after some other God and hope that they'll one day speak. You see, the sad reality of human history is that although God has clearly spoken, men have largely rejected what He said. That was the reality of Jesus' day when God spoke in and through His Son. Most in the crowd rejected Him. Most in the crowd refused to listen. In fact, they crucified Him. And in their crucifixion of Him, He laid down His life for all of our sins. For the sins, all the sins of those who would place their trust in Him, who would hear His message that He's spoken and believe it who would respond to His spoken message, the Gospel, with faith and trust in Him, who would reject every other voice in the world and entrust themselves to Him alone. But sadly, most have not done so. In Ezekiel's day, in Ezekiel chapter 33... God says this to the people. He tells Ezekiel to say this to the people. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? We hear in the very voice of God long ago, through the prophet Ezekiel, a God who speaks and a God who desires that His people would live and have life. The God who said those things has declared Himself fully to you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think He would ask the question of you and the question of me today. Why would you choose to die and not listen? Why would you choose to reject me and die when you can receive me and live? The only way to be reconciled to our Creator is through the man Jesus Christ. The only way to even know who God is is to look to Jesus. The only way to know what God has said is to listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus is everything. And there is no one like Him. He is a God who speaks. And He is a God who even this morning is speaking to you. Do you hear Him? Will you respond to what He has said? Will you believe in Him? Will you come to Him and drink and be satisfied? Will you come to the One who is the resurrection and the life that you might gain eternal life so that even when you die, you'll live. There's no magic formula to that. It's just simply a man or a woman in his own heart making a decision. A decision to reject every other voice and to believe the Word of Christ. A decision to entrust your life to Him forever. In your own words, in your own way, it's bowing before Him saying, Jesus, I know who You are. 
You are the Messiah who has come. You are God in human flesh. And you have spoken God's message. In fact, you are God. And you have offered to me eternal life if I will confess my sin and submit my life before you under your Lordship. And so this very day I do that very thing. You take my life, Lord Jesus. It's yours. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. From this day forward, my life is all about hearing your voice, hearing what you've said, and living it that I might be made like you. And that one day, I might see you face to face when this life is over. You can do that this morning in your own words as we bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never believed the message that He has delivered, then right now you have the opportunity. Will you believe Him? Will you receive Him? Will you submit your life to Him? Or will you choose to continue to reject? If you reject, you must know there is no other message from God for you. God has nothing else to say than what He's already said in His Son. And you can wait for the rest of your life and you'll never hear God speak another message to you. Oh God, for those who have gathered with us this morning, who have not been reconciled to you through your Son, Jesus, who have refused and resisted your voice that has been speaking to them their whole lives, through nature, through what they've seen, through creation, and ultimately through your Son. I pray that you would open their eyes to the reality of who they are and where they stand before you today and that you would draw them to Jesus Christ, your Son, that they might by faith receive Him as Lord and Savior and find in Him full forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that He may capture them within His hand and no one might ever be able to rip them out. But you must open their eyes and you must draw them. You must grant them the faith to believe. You do your work by your Spirit. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Bless.